to continue getting to work with the greatest people in the world. Um, you know, I'm a big believer that like one of the best signs of professional happiness of someone who really enjoys the work that they do is that when you ask them that question, they're like, I don't know. I kind of just want to keep doing this. Um, I know that some people might say that that's unambitious for lack of better word, but to me, I wake up every day loving what I do and really enjoying the caliber of musicians and artists who I get to call friends and who I get to call on on a daily basis. And I don't want that to change. I really want to keep getting to work with wonderful people. I don't care so much about trying to expand my net worth or trying to increase the prestige of the things that I'm doing. I just want to keep getting to create music that I love with people that I love. And if that's what I get to do for the rest of my career, I think that I will have had the most remarkable career of all time, from my perspective. Welcome to Rewind. An optimistic podcast that'll help you in your successful career in music. Amit Weiner hosts musicians, composers, professors, and sound wizards as they share their life stories and career decisions. Stay tuned, it's gonna be epic. Hello and welcome to another episode of Rewind, the podcast that will help you build and elevate your career in music. Thank you so much for joining to this episode. I'm your host, Amit Weiner, and today we have a very, very special guest. But first of all, don't forget to rate the podcast and give it a follow on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. It will help the podcast reach more people who might find it interesting. All right, so our guest today is Mason Lieberman. Mason, thank you so much for being here today. It's such an honor to be with you. Thank you so much for being here. I will shortly introduce you to the listeners. Mason Lieberman is a senior composer and game audio supervisor at Tencent, which is one of the biggest companies in the world and in the gaming industry. Mason is an award-winning composer, audio director, and producer known for his contributions to the gaming and anime industries. He prides himself on being a problem solver whose biggest passion is always to connect people through music. Mason gave lectures at Harvard University, UCLA Musicians Institute, Berklee College of Music and more. And Mason is an adjunct professor at both Berklee College of Music and the University of Southern California. And we are recording this episode just a couple of days after you and your team won the Hollywood Music in Media Award for Best Mobile Game Score. Congratulations. Thank you so much. Um, it was a real honor, and I mean, you know, as a music director, and I was one of the music directors for this particular project, um, it, it just feels so good to see your team recognized for the work that they do, and a game like Game for Peace, which is the title that won, um, it's a live service title. We're creating fresh content for it week in, week out, year round, and have been for years, so... You know, it's kind of great to see that the old dog can still uh, still has a few new tricks in it, so to speak. Wow. Congratulations, Mason. I'm so happy for you. 
Mason, could you start with sharing with the listeners your musical journey and how you've got to the place you are today? Totally, totally. Um, I came from being a session recording cellist before I was a composer. Um, I started playing cello when I was five years old. And, you know, I played a lot as a kid. And when I was younger, I was probably a much more impressive musician than I am now in some respects. Um, I made my symphonic debut when I was about 12 years old. I played in Lincoln Center when I was 13. Um, you know, I had a childhood that was very, very classically informed. I ended up going to college at a place in East Texas, Stephen F. Austin State University, initially because my parents wanted me to stay close to home until I turned 18. I happened to graduate very young. Um, and from there, I went onward to Berkeley when I did turn 18. And... That changed my life. It was my first opportunity getting to record for other composers, my first opportunity getting to realize the wider scope of what being a media composer could really look like. Um, and it started my career. A lot of my first work came from either other students or professors. It, it just came from people that I connected with through Berkeley. So I cannot emphasize enough what a wonderful experience that was for me. Um, my first works starting in my uh, career, I did a lot of recording for students that led to opportunities recording on media projects. Chief among them, the, some of the earliest ones were Super Smash Bros for Wii U and 3DS. And then I started recording and eventually writing for a Rooster Teeth show called Ruby. And that actually is what led to my career growth in Japan because the soundtrack was very popular over there was very anime-influenced show. It was a very J-Rocky kind of soundtrack. And when I left that show, I was one of the only composers who'd worked on it who was available for work and hadn't, uh, or wasn't still on the show. So I ended up getting a call to join the team for Beyblade Burst. That was my first anime credit, and everything kind of spiraled out of control from there. Wow, and you're current job at Tencent, could you describe exactly what it entails and how did you get the job? Yeah, I mean, the shortest real answer is I'm an audio director. Um, I manage the audio pipeline, music, sound, voiceover, audio-related management problems, whatever it is that you can think of that is related to the audio department as a whole. Um, I tend to focus on the music side of things because that's where my expertise is. Um, and I was recruited for the role. They tracked me down after I'd been working in the anime industry for a number of years because they were looking for someone with a very particular profile of experience in Eastern Asian IP and East Asian workplaces, which I'd been working in Japan and I'd worked on Chinese film and K-pop and a lot of stuff on that part of the world um, for multiple years. And they were looking for a Westerner who understood how the media industry over here happened to work and who could hopefully help bridge the communication gap a little bit of helping Western artists better understand what they could do to collaborate with Tencent and helping Tencent better understand what they could do to be an attractive hiring, you know, a hiring company for Western artists and how they could better make that process as seamless as possible. Wow. So... You know, Mason, one of the questions that I always like to ask composers is um, the first thing that you're doing when you compose a new piece, whether it's for a video game or for a film or a TV show. So when you open the DAW and it's empty, what do you do then? 
Um, this is such an unsatisfying answer, but it is the truth. Um, I am like the least inspiration-based composer of all time. Like, I'm one of those people who's like, I can write anything at any time, and if it sucks, who cares? Like, I can edit it into being good. I'm a big believer in the revision process. So, you know, within like a minute of opening the DAW, I grab whatever channel I think is most likely to be relevant, whatever instrument I think is important for this thing, and I immediately start playing. I immediately record something. And I would say that like 90, 95% of the time, that first thing that I end up putting down probably makes it to the final recording in one way or another. So you are not afraid of the empty DAW or the empty, the blank page? No, I mean, in anime, we don't have time to be afraid of it. Like, <laughs> you know, the amount of, just the sheer amount of music that we're expected to produce and the time limit we have to produce it. Um, I don't know if you happen to listen to much anime music, but one of the big challenges from it, from a creative perspective, is that it's very much an everything and the kitchen sink kind of medium. You know, there aren't really a lot of opportunities for throw the football cues where you're just playing long pads and filling space because it's not scored to picture. And when you don't actually have a picture to sync, you can't Mickey Mouse things. You can't, you know, hit to the cut as tightly as you can. What that leaves you with is melody and storytelling. It leaves you with descriptions of scenes, with ideas of what's happening emotionally, and you just need to write something that matters. Like, you can't kind of get caught up in, like, the micro details. It forces you to see the forest and not the trees. You have to write a story. You have to use your melody and your harmony to the best of your ability because you don't know where the dialogue is and you can't, you know, cut underneath it and cut back. But I think the end result is it actually forces you to focus on telling a cogent story and on actually pushing, you know, the emotions forward, which in my experience is one of the easiest ways to write music and has actually informed a lot of my creative processes outside of anime as a result of that. You know, I'm a lot less afraid of film scoring than I think I was when I was a student because I realized that at the end of the day, I'm not trying to just hit a bunch of edits. I'm trying to tell a story. And anime really helped me, at least, to take that step forward to do that job better. For all those who are interested in composing music either for video games or for anime, so what actually do you get from the uh, game developer? Do you get, get, like, pictures or only story in words, what is the material that they are sending you for you to compose the music? So it totally depends. Um, I will say the most common thing that we do from the Tencent side of things, for example, um, I'll get what basically looks like an Excel spreadsheet or a Google sheet or something like that. That'll have a bunch of different tabs of details on what we need, you know. It'll have the title of whatever the project is. It'll have the game in it. If there are any art assets that are references, there's gameplay footage that was recorded. It'll have that there. It'll have any music references that we might have. Maybe there's a specific artist who has a vibe that's kind of similar to what we're going for. Maybe there's a specific scene in a movie that was inspirational when we were designing that particular cutscene, whatever it might be. Um, and there'll be a description of what we're going for. We're looking for 90-second theme of these two characters fighting, or it's this overworld area, this is kind of the culture and vibe of it. You know, whatever it is that the project team can put together, 
to detail things out as much as possible for the composer. Um, and it's a collaborative process, to be fair. You know, part of the nature of being an audio director, in my case, sometimes I receive these things and I go, well, yeah, that's that's like 80% there. Let me, let me tailor this a little bit. Let me adjust it. Okay, this is what we actually want. Let's send this to the composer. Or, okay, I love this, but I'm going to write this thing. Here's kind of my twist on this idea because I think it fits better with the world building we've done in this game before and it makes more sense and, you know, maybe it's a little bit bigger of a swing and maybe it works, maybe it doesn't. Um, sometimes we get entire gameplay footage sequences to work with. Sometimes we're doing the work before that footage would really be valuable or relevant. Sometimes we're working off concept art and sometimes it's just a conversation with the project manager, the game director, other team leads, what have you. I understand. Just, I have to tell you that as a composer myself, I really like the way that you said before, I mean, I, you, that you just, when you have an empty page or an empty DAW template, so you just throw some notes and then you edit it from there. I mean, I think it's something very calm to think about and very refreshing. And I know that many uh, of my students and many people that are starting to compose music are afraid of that blank page. So what, what would be your tips for those who find like, uh, you know, find themselves like frozen when they see a blank page or DAW template? Um, giving yourself limitations is the easiest way to get past it, realistically. Um, when every single option that could ever exist is what's in front of you, that's, that is terrifying. That's really hard. That's, you know, how do you compose your way out of a closed box? But when you give yourself limitations, when you go, okay, I'm designing this project in advance. Here is the orchestral template I'm going to work with. These are the instruments that I'm going to work with. And unless I have a really good reason to go outside of it, I'm sticking in here. That helps a bit. By the act of putting that first note on the page, you immediately put yourself into a position of going, okay, well, what follows that? I don't need to find out every single note that exists. I just need to know what comes after this one and what comes after that one and on and on and on. And before you know it, you've got a melody or you've got a harmony, you've got a groove, whatever it is that you're building out first. And from there, you know, it's the revision process. And I think that most composers, even when they're younger, even when they're less confident, we'll say, when they're starting their careers out, it can be hard to know which direction to go for something, but you can tell whether or not something's good or bad most of the time. You have an artistic instinct, you have musical integrity, and if you just put something down, then you can then make the judgment call, okay, does this suck? Okay, it does, let's do this instead. Oh, actually, no, it doesn't quite suck. You know, there's this part's weird. Okay, well, I can adjust this part. All right, is this good? Yeah, yeah, maybe this is good. Well, I wonder what comes after this. And so you go. That's the creative process. Wow, that's so interesting. So there's a very nice book that I've read a couple of times called Effortless Mastery by Kenny Werner. And he's talking about that, about that mastery should be effortless. And one of the things that he writes in the, writes in the book is that if you are afraid of improvisation or composition, I mean, if you are afraid of creating music on the spot, 
So he's saying something like exactly as you just said, said, just put your fingers on the piano and just say out loud, this is the most beautiful sound that I've ever heard. You know, just a note or a chord. This is the most beautiful sound I've ever heard. And then continue from there. So it's such a nice, uh, I like that. such a nice thing. I, I'm a very big believer of like, music is so contextual like we're screens composers you know everything that we do is in service of someone else's story in the first place like there is something remarkably freeing of that of realizing that it's basically impossible to write bad music there's just music that doesn't service this particular purpose that you have and if something isn't working in that moment it allows you the easy mental freedom to go hey you know, maybe the director doesn't like this. Maybe the, the creators don't connect with this thing. That doesn't mean that it's a reflection on me as an artist. It's not saying I am someone who makes bad work. It's just saying, hey, this particular idea, save it for later. You know, put it somewhere else. Because you never know when you might find out that the thing that kind of worked on this action show becomes the perfect idea for this separate, you know, like thriller or something like that it's just you know unpredictable yeah definitely so actually i want to ask you about that so about the ego of the composer i mean i find it very difficult for many people also to deal with that and with rejections and with revisions so how do you deal with writing the best music you've ever wrote i mean you're working on something for hours or days and then you send it to the developer or the director and he's saying i just hate it are you getting insulted? Where do you put your ego in those situations? What tips you can give? Um, I think that if you do this job for any significant amount of time, you develop very thick skin quickly. And you realize that, again, sometimes a project just isn't for you. And I've had cases where I've been removed from projects. I've been had cases where things just didn't seem to go right, even though it seemed like the easiest thing to take care of. And that, does, that isn't a reflection on you as an artist. It's a reflection on your connection to that particular project. And there is no real positive or negative connotation to a gig working out or not working out. You're doing the best you can. They're trying to get the best project. And if the music doesn't meet in the middle, so be it. That happens. I will say that for me, I started off when I was uh, younger being very averse to rewriting. I always tried to edit my way out of whatever notes I got of like, oh, I don't want to waste all of this work. I don't want to waste all this time. Uh, they're not liking this thing. I'll just uh, edit this and revise this and, you know, try and, you know, hack my way out of the box. And sometimes that's not what you really need. Like, I think that one of the signs of musical maturity when you're working in media score is the ability to recognize in a client when they're giving notes like yeah this is a full rewrite i think i'm just gonna go ahead and do this one from scratch even if they're like oh no no you don't i don't want you to have to do all that work because sometimes that's just what it takes and sometimes doing that full rewrite is going to be the thing that then allows them to realize what they liked about the first take or it leads you down a new path that's even better I will say I never worry about the idea of, oh, I've written the greatest thing I've ever written and they're rejecting it. What? Because at the end of the day, like, I don't know. I I'm a big believer that like the creativity is something that comes from you, that comes from your process. 
and you could just do it again. Like, there is no piece of music or cue I've written that is so special and so unique that I am not capable of making it, because I made it in the first place. So I'm always very comfortable with the idea that, okay, you know, I liked this one, whatever. Maybe it just goes on my demo reel or something. Maybe it's just one that I like. But I can always do something better. I can always find a way to get deeper into the project. I just need to think about it more and see what I can do to kind of edge and grasp my way into the story that needs to be told. Yeah, wow. That's, a such, that's such a nice uh, perspective of looking at things. And just to end this section about composing and the challenges of being a composer. So what do you do if you have a writer's block or do you have writer's blocks? I don't have writer's block, which I don't say that in like some, oh, I'm better than other composers thing. I just don't really, with my process, with the way that I work, writer's block as a concept just doesn't make a ton of sense to me. Like, I'm a big believer of like, well, I can always sit down at a piano and play some notes and get something on the page. Maybe it's not great, maybe it's not the right thing, but I can always find a way into it. And oftentimes, whenever I'm balancing a lot of different projects, if my head isn't in the mental space for a certain type of project, I will usually just take that as a sign of like a schedule permitting, okay, pivot to one of the other things where my head is more conducive to that. I had a project this summer, actually, that wanted me to write music for a penguin game, for lack of a better word. Um, and it was very cute, and it was very fun, and it was very ice climbers-y. And some dark stuff had happened in my life that I wasn't really in the mood for cute penguin game. But this is where having open conversations with the creatives that you work with allows you to find the space to do something different. I spoke with them, and the idea of this game, I was scoring the finale of it, and, you know, it's the end of the journey, you've climbed this mountain together, and it's you and your best friend. And they expected me to do something, you know, cute and happy. And I was like, hey, this is a different emotional approach, but what about nostalgia and, you know, like make, making the connection before it's gone? Like, and the realization that people aren't with you forever. So cherish them in the time you've got. That's a very different emotion than happy and celebratory, but it was an emotion that actually would work as well for this particular project. And so I ended up going in a totally different direction on it. I ended up actually writing a piece of uh, a hip hop piece in collaboration with a very close friend. And both of us have dealt with, you know, very traumatic, difficult loss of people who we love. And so we wrote, about that experience and about how, you know, people can't be there forever, so value them while you have the opportunity to. And honestly, it was one of the best things on that project. It was by far better than anything I think I would have written if I had been in the right headspace to write the correct thing that they were asking for. And they even said as much once I had actually delivered the project of like, wow, we didn't know where this was going but like holy shit like this is this means something to us and this means something to you and i think there's a lot to be said for writing from the heart in that way sometimes and as media composers we're often very emotionally distant from our works in a certain way of like oh 
you know, I'm not writing about me. I'm not a songwriter. I'm not that kind of musician. But maybe we should be a little bit closer to the stuff we do. Maybe we should care a little bit more emotionally about the type of content that we're putting out. Um, at least for me, I found that it often results in very compelling music. Wow, that's very interesting. Uh, that uh, hip-hop track, where can the listeners find it? What's the name and where it can be found if they want to listen? Uh, that one is called We Had a Blast um, for Brett and Fred. And it's out at this point. Um, I'll shoot you a link after the, uh, after the talk. Okay, so I can put it in the description so listeners can find and listen to because this was such an inspiring story. I'm sure many listeners would love to hear the, the results as well. So Mason, I want to ask you a little bit about uh, academic studying because you said before about and you spoke um, about the importance of Berkeley College of Music in your career and in your developing as a musician. And I know many young people that might be listening to the podcast as well. Many young people think that today YouTube has it all and they are right. YouTube has everything. I mean, everything is yeah. on YouTube. <laughs> But what would you say if people were to ask you, should I go to study in an academic institution or should I study by myself with YouTube or digital courses, et cetera, et cetera? Um, there are a couple of things that I kind of want to hit on as an educator. First of all, everyone has a different learning style. There are things that work for some people that don't work for others. You know, this is kind of your classic, some people learn really well from taking and retranscribing notes. Some people learn really well from auditory things, from hearing examples, from having it explained to them. Some people are very visual. You need something visually written down, like on a whiteboard in order to really retain it. And the same things are true of musical education. Some people are going to learn a ton if they're doing a bunch of ear training exercises and transcribing of great solos and things like that. That'll train their skills a lot. Other people are going to learn from reading. You know, you put the right person in front of a copy of Samuel Adler's book and they're going to walk out a master of orchestration. And there are other people who you could hand them the exact same book and they're going to walk out being like, what the hell was this? Like, I don't, this is, it doesn't translate for me. Um, what I will say is that, objectively speaking, when it comes to learning music, when it comes to learning theory, harmony, whatever, anything you could possibly want to learn, there are resources out there that you don't need to spend money on that exist on YouTube or on websites dedicated to your instrument or your craft or what have you. The info is out there. But when it comes to a collegiate environment, you're being surrounded by your peers and the classes are valuable. The classes are indeed a large part of what you're paying for, but it's really the connection with your peers and with your community that can't really be duplicated elsewhere. I learned so much in Berkeley jam sessions and in hanging out with friends who I wanted to impress and who probably inspired me to work way harder than I would have if I was just doing my classwork alone. Um, and that led to opportunities down the road. The network that I built at Berkeley was a huge contributor to the value of the place for me. That said, and I'm going to be very, very particular on this, starting a career in media score as a composer is backbreakingly slow. 
It is difficult work. It is something that takes a long time. You don't make a lot of money for a long time. And if you have the albatross of massive student debt hanging over you while you try and do that, then it might not even be possible because you may hit a point where you have enough debt that you are required to have a day job. And it is going to be something you don't have much control over and it's going to be something that drains you. And when you come home at the end of the day, you don't have the creative energy to then pursue music in the way that you want to. And other people are going to pull ahead and you're not going to have easy access to opportunities. I am able to enjoy the benefits of what I got from Berkeley so much because I didn't have massive student debt coming out of it, which is not necessarily a typical experience. I was on scholarship as a cello player. I worked the entire time as a resident assistant, as an RA, and I was gigging and recording the entire time. I was one of the cello players for SSP, the Session Scoring Project, which I basically was the cello soloist who worked on a ton of film scoring projects, which also helped with the networking side. I met a lot of composers when I was a student, some of who would go on to hire me. You know, there are people who I worked with as a student on projects, you know, 10, 15 years ago, who I saw, you know, at the HMMAs today, or in the last few days, I should say. You know, that kind of thing is, that that's the industry, you know? These are the people who are going to go on to be your peers. So, to a certain degree, I want to just make sure that I'm very clear. Berkeley was able to be an unmitigated success for me because I tried my best to take full advantage of the resources and the community that was available to me during it, but I was able to then follow up on it after college because I did not have massive student debt waiting for me. Between all of those various factors, I graduated basically debt-free. That is not something that would have happened if I was not hyper overemployed the entire time I was there and I wasn't a cello player and I hadn't gotten a scholarship going into it and just all these things kind of coalescing to make the dream possible. And so I would not tell a student, hey, you know, this place is perfect for you. You need to go there. Just take out a cool 300 grand in debt. That's not how this works whatsoever. I would tell someone if you have the opportunity to make this affordable for you, whatever that means, and, you know, people come from different means, so what that means is completely variable. Um, if you're able to make this something where you can keep your opportunities open into the future, that is where I would say that something like Berkeley could be life-changing. And for me, it certainly was. Yeah, wow. I totally agree with you. So... If I want to ask you a little bit deeper about the, um, the pros and cons about learning uh, in an institution and learning by yourself. So you're saying it's not necessarily the material, but the people and the environment that you have in an institution. So what I will say is I'm going to define this as learning alone versus learning with others, because there are ways that you can learn with others without going to a college. There are community groups that are out there. There are online communities. There are a lot of opportunities that are out there. When it comes to learning in a group, you don't know what you don't know, just objectively speaking. When you are having to self-guide your education as a solo learner, you're going to look up the things that you are aware you can be looking up. And, you know, it's kind of the classic like, oh, yeah, if I'm... A composer and I'm aware of like what VSTs are 
yeah, I could probably try and learn more about like drum programming. I could try and learn a little bit more about how contact works. I could try all of these various things. Um, but if I don't have any understanding of the concept of like mastering, if I don't have any background in it, if no one's ever talked to me about it, you know, if I'm on a job or something and like my mastering engineer mentions that he's going to run something through like the manly massive passive, I don't know what that means. I don't, I might be able to guess by the description of the name, but who knows? Um, and when you're self-guided on something, it can be hard for you to realize the places you don't know. By the same token, opportunities can appear from anywhere. And when you're in a community, when you're surrounded by other musicians who believe in you, who support you, who are your friends, who are your educators, um, you can't predict where these things are going to happen, but it's much more likely that they will. When I mentioned that first show, uh, Ruby, that I worked on, I ended up on that show because when I was hanging out in the dorms with a friend of mine, he showed me a random song called This'll Be The Day, um, and it was the opening theme of that show, which had just come out at the time, and he's like, sounds sick, right? And I was like, yeah, no, this is an awesome song. And he goes, by the way, the drums are fake. And I didn't really know about drum programming at the time, so I was like, wait, what? How do you do that? Is it possible to learn this skill? And he's like, not from a Jedi. But, I mean, the guy who wrote the song is faculty here. Maybe you could ask him. Because this friend brought this thing up to me, I went into the course catalog. I found the faculty, uh, like, directory. I reached out to this guy, Jeff Williams, and I said, hey, I have some questions about drums. I'm not actually in any of your classes, but I heard one of your songs, and it was sick, and I, I have questions. And he invited me to come, and... I ended up learning more in that office hour than I felt I had been in any of my classes. So I kind of committed to myself afterward, hey, I'm just going to show up every week until I feel like I've learned everything I'm trying to do. Because of this, I ended up going to this guy's office hour every single week until I graduated, like two years later. Wow. Because of that... You know, we ended up building a relationship that had nothing to do with me being a student of his. We just became peers and colleagues and friends. And fast forward, you know, a few months in, he was showing me, you know, music that he hadn't put out yet or things like that. He was sending me stuff to listen to mixes. And he sent me a song that happened to have a MIDI cello solo in it called Wings. And I told him with, you know, all the cocky bravado of like a freshman oh, yeah, no, that, uh, your MIDI cello sucked there. I could have done better. And he's like, bitch, no, you couldn't. And I was like, try me. So I ran upstairs, grabbed my cello, brought it back down to the lab where we were meeting, and I played the solo on the spot because I could, in fact, do it better. And he went, huh. Well, damn. I'll remember that. Fast forward another few months, he invited me to do a live gig with him in Texas because he knew that I was from Texas. We played at RTX in 2014, which was the Rooster Teeth convention, on the very first Music of Ruby panel. We came up with acoustic versions of some of the songs because that seemed like what we were able to do. And because it was so well received live, he ended up deciding to put those arrangements onto the second soundtrack when the next season was coming out. And of course, I got the gig because I was the guy who did them the first time around. All of which is to say, I wouldn't have had that opportunity 
if I hadn't been hanging out with a friend who just showed me a song randomly. That kind of thing doesn't happen when you're solo studying something. Certainly not, you know, the realization of, oh yeah, the guy's here, you could probably talk to him and ask him about this. And the same thing has been true time and time again in my career, that certain, you know, happenstance opportunities will avail themselves if you put yourself in a place where people can talk to you and where you can share what you're interested in. You know, that's at least been my take on it. Yeah, that's such a nice story about how when you open one door, another door, the door can be opened and then it, it's like a domino of doors that can be opened to you in your career. And in the opposite, if you only sit by yourself and watch only YouTube in your room, you are only looking at YouTube. It's not an interactive uh, situation. I mean, no door can open to you while you are watching YouTube. And I totally agree with, agree with that. I will say most of the time a YouTube video is not going to give you a job. And I've had multiple instances in my student career where some of my first gigs came from faculty, came from people who I was in their class and they were like, hey, you know what? I think that I can take a chance on you. Arrange some things for my tour. Arrange this thing for my show. Record on this movie for me. Like, you know opportunities availed themselves when I made a human connection with someone in person. And yeah, it's possible to do that online. A lot of my early career was remote, was me connecting with people like that, and that was where the work came from. But it's harder, just objectively speaking. It is much harder to make a real connection with someone that really sticks online, at least for me. Maybe you have a different personality, you know, dear viewer. <laughs> Yeah. 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 I totally agree with that. So Mason, what would you say to young musicians or not even musicians, people that want to become musicians? And I've seen it in many countries that I visited and are afraid of not finding um, a way of making a living in music. I mean, what would you say are your tips of becoming a professional musician and make a living through music? Um, for starters, I would say that it's hard and it takes time. If you look at most of the successful composers in our field, the vast majority of them, you'll notice that their credits really started to kind of become prominent and visible to you when they're in like their 40s. You know, that's the level of runway that it takes to really make a sustainable career in this field. Is you're looking at 10 to 20 years potentially if we're looking at the averages anyway, of working for other people, of being an assistant, of trying to find opportunities, of probably not being very well paid, if we're totally honest. And yes, there are exceptions. There are people who end up breaking through much faster or who have a really good run of luck or something like that. But that's not something that you can depend on or expect to be you. If it is, great, congratulations. I'm thrilled for you. But... I wouldn't like budget your life assuming that you're going to be the person who breaks every single rule in the process, because statistically you won't be. Um, I will say that having as diverse of a skill set as possible really helps with making ends meet. When I was starting my music career, composition was not what was actually paying me all that much. Yeah, I had some credits, I had some opportunities, I'd worked on, you know, Ruby, I got into Beyblade, and I started doing anime stuff, but anime doesn't actually pay that well. 
And so oftentimes the thing that was actually paying my rent that was actually floating me was working as a wedding cellist and working as a music educator, you know, doing private lessons, things like that. And that's where I ended up developing the love for music education, funnily enough, because it wasn't my undergraduate degree. But, you know, you got to find a way to sustain yourself. And ideally, you find something that is connected to music in some way so that the time that you're spending on it is still time in the industry. It's still time in the direction of where you want to go. You know, I've worked jobs that had nothing to do with uh, music before. And yeah, you know, it's a paycheck. It works. But at the end of the day, those were periods of time that did not really meaningfully contribute to developing soft skills or a network in my community or hard skills that could be the thing that produces the music that gets me the next job or something to that effect. You know, it, it was just money. And in some cases that made it some of the most expensive work I've ever had to do because it didn't have that multifaceted value. Um, so, you know, if you have other musical skill sets, you know, get good at arranging, get good at orchestration, get good at production, get good at composition, be good at your instrument, play for other people, record for other people. You know, the amount of opportunities that I've gotten because of projects where I could afford to charge less when I was starting out in my career because I could offer free cello recording to other composers if they would record for free on my soundtracks. And we would go back and forth and, you know, oh, wow, this sounds absolutely amazing. How did you get full live brass on this ensemble and, like, all live strings and all these vocals and all these things, you know? We didn't have that kind of budget. Like, what were people paid? Oh, well, it was actually a Skillshare, you know? We traded back and forth. I recorded for a bunch of other people. They recorded for me so that I could give you the best music that I could. And, you know, that kind of thing breeds loyalty. That breeds, you know, wow, well, I promise the next time around we'll call you again and we're going to have more budget and it's going to be great. And most of the time, those things have rung out as true, you know? I've always tried to find ways to make any project sound as good as it possibly can, regardless of what that budget is. You know, there is no project that is unimportant in the grand scheme of things. It's always someone's baby, and you always want to treat it with the utmost respect and love and care. And, you know, you never want to feel like someone else's dream is your inconvenience. Wow, that's resonating with me so much. I mean, the, the things that you've said about having a diverse skill set, This is something that I've also read recently in a book about career in music by Angela Miles Beeching. The, the book is called Beyond Talent. And I'm hoping also to uh, have her as a guest in this podcast later. And she talks about that uh, portfolio career, um, which is something like this is the new musician, I, uh, I would say, or she's saying also the new musician of the 21st century is not doing only one very, very narrow thing but he's doing as you said be good at production arranging orchestrating uh, know what mastering is how to mix how to play an instrument and you can play in weddings i mean this is like mm -hmm. the new musician's career of the 21st century absolutely i mean i for me honestly like i have adhd for anyone who doesn't happen to know and i do my best to stagger and work on multiple projects because it helps me stimulate my brain in a way that makes it easier for me to do my job. Um, and I love the fact that 
contrary to some of the things that I think I learned when I was a student, um, it has only been a boon to my career that I do multiple things. You know, I record on soundtracks for people all the time as a cello player, as a vocalist, as a guitarist, as a bassist, as an air who player. I work all the time as a composer. I work as a music director. I arrange for jazz band because it's something I'm really passionate about. I do gigs, you know, of all kinds. Stuff as far as like being like a cello player, singer, etc. You know, I used to do like, I used to, this is kind of a fun fact of the day about me. One of the ways that I would sometimes make ends meet when I was younger was actually doing uh, Frank Sinatra sound-alike gigs. Like, coming along and basically being out here doing the whole, come fly with me, let's fly, <laughs> let's fly away, kind of thing. Like, that was stuff that I did to make ends meet. Okay, listeners request right now. Any requests from the listeners? Maybe my way, please, Mason. I did it my way. You, you get the idea. <laughs> That's great. But like these, you know, and these are skills that they all add on each other. You know, I, my experience as a vocalist growing up and doing musical theater and doing these Sinatra gigs led me to have a better understanding of choir, which was valuable as a composer and has led to other opportunities. I was a choir director for the Pokemon anime for Paldian Winds. I've been a choir director for Bye Bye Earth for multiple other shows because of this particular experience for, you know, it, it comes up multiple times. And yeah, I, for lack of better word, you know, this is what I'm talking about when I'm saying work in a direction that services your overall career ambition. Whether or not I'm a good vocalist doesn't really matter to if I'm going to get hired as a composer, but it does matter in how do I build relationships with other composers that could lead to work or opportunities down the road. There are people who have hired me as a vocalist, and because I demonstrated musical competence there, you know, they trust me. They're like, well, Mason didn't let me down last time. I've got this other thing that needs doing, and he's already in the team. He's already on the project. I wonder if maybe Mason could handle it. That's how I grew on a lot of opportunities. On Ruby, I was a cello player before I was a composer. On Beyblade, I was a guitarist before I was a composer. And this has happened time and time and time again. That's awesome, but I have to stop you for a second. You, you've mentioned that you played Erhu, right? Unfortunately, yes. Okay, so for those who don't know what it is, so can you explain a little bit what it is and how the hell did you learn how to play it? <laughs> um, the same way I learned most of these instruments. Um, Erhu is sometimes referred to as the Chinese spike fiddle. Um, it's the long, you know, the neck with the little kind of rounded octagonal box with like a snake skin on it. And it's got two strings and a bow that goes in the middle. And it's a traditional Chinese instrument that's absolutely gorgeous. Like every single time you've heard a score and there's some kind of string sound thing that's soaring through the air, that's very elegant, very majestic. That's usually an air who that is what that instrument most often is. And it's a very, very well-known popular instrument. Um, as for how I did it, um, This is the exact same way that I learned bass, incidentally. Um, I was, I had a couple hundred dollars that was burning a hole in my pocket, and I was like, you know, I bet this would be good for my career if I knew how to play this instrument. 
and I'm a good cello player. I, how different could it possibly be? You know, it, you play it like this. So, like, I bought one, and I started playing, and I sucked at it until I didn't suck quite so much. Um, but that's kind of, you know, that's what you do. When I was in college, I was a cello player, and I didn't really play electric bass. And Berkeley had a gig board that constantly was posting opportunities, and I would get almost anything that got posted on cello, because there weren't that many of us. But I was constantly seeing bass gigs that were going unfilled, because there were so many needs for bass players and not enough bass players. And I went, you know, I play guitar, I play cello, Surely bass is somewhere in the middle. It can't be that hard. And I just bought a bass and I started playing. And, you know, that has led to opportunities over the years that I couldn't imagine. I'm in, like, I'm now endorsing Kiesel as a guitarist and a bass player, which College Mason could never imagine something like that would ever happen. I've toured on electric bass. I've gigged for, I've been on soundtracks for that kind of thing. It's been one of the great creative joys. It's probably my favorite instrument to play from a physicality standpoint, um, which is surprising because I started as a cello player. But, you know, I started doing it because I saw that there was a need for bass players, and I was like, oh, yeah, I bet I could do that. I'll figure it out. And that's something that will take you very far in your career if that is a mentality that you can adapt consistently because you're going to end up finding over time that this is true of everything in the music industry. You're going to be out here, you know, seeing a lot of things in like the hybrid orchestra side of things right now, for example. There are a lot of scores that do that. And so if you go, huh, there's a lot of synth stuff going on in these scores. I bet if I got really good at synth programming, that would probably be valuable to some composers who might want to hire me. And if I can demonstrate value, that's probably the way to get in with their team and potentially get down the road be composing. Or maybe you're good at rock production. Maybe you're good at metal. Maybe you play, you know, an instrument that's very rare. Maybe you keep an instrument collection of weird stuff so that when people are like, oh, I need someone with an auto harp. I need someone who has a melodica. I need someone with a zither. Whatever it is, you're the person who's like, oh, yeah, I've been working on my collection you know, come over, we'll record some zither and gamelon. You know, we'll have fun. And that can be an entry into a very meaningful, sustainable career. Yeah, definitely. So how many instruments actually do you have in your home studio? Let's not talk about that. Uh, <laughs> okay. It's, it's not crazy, crazy. Like, it's, it's not, there are people who are far more successful than I am and far more, have far more space than I do. Um, I will say I, I, I keep a healthy stack of instruments. Okay. So people that are interested about uh, your uh, instruments can approach you uh, in private and ask a tour in your uh, yeah, home studio. Sure, sure. What I will say is I'm a big believer every time you have an opportunity to learn new instruments, it only makes you a better composer. It makes you more empathetic for what your musicians are going through. And so whenever I'm working on a project, I will try to see if there's a reason that I should expand the collection, if there's something that makes sense for it. You know, I'm not actually the biggest gearhead when it comes to the tech side of things. Like, I have a relatively simple setup that I run through as far as all of my computer computing stuff is concerned. It's very much computer interface monitor. Like, it, that's really it. Like, I don't have a huge outboard gear side. 
But, you know, if a project tells me, hey, I bet I could justify getting a sitar for this, I'll get a sitar. If it's like, oh yeah, grab some tablas, let's, you know, beef up the percussion side. Get a lion, you know, gong from China or whatever. I'm down. So just a technical question before, um, like, uh, wrapping it up, this wonderful episode so far. So first of all, a technical question. So in your music, what is the percentage of uh, MIDI and VST instruments and live instruments? Um, I would say that it depends on a given project because I have projects that are completely in the box. Um, well, with the asterisk, I will say... If it is genre appropriate, then it might be completely in the box. But if there is any potential for live instruments, it will have live people on it. Preferably not just me, because I'm very passionate about the collaborative aspect of music. And I don't want to be alone in my uh, creative process. I like working with other people. But I will always record things on my own stuff, no matter what, you know. I always put my guitar in there. I'm always putting my cello in there. I'm always singing in there. If there's an air who, it's me. If there's a recorder, it's me. If there's, you know, percussion, it's me. Like, I'm trying my best to get so many things into it. And then I'm always looking for opportunities to collaborate with other musicians on whatever it is that they do. And, you know, I'm always looking for really cool, creative ways to have fun with the process, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Wow, Mason, so far it has been such an interesting and inspiring episode, and we are here almost an hour already. So first of all, thank you so much for being in this episode. And it was really inspiring for me and I'm sure also for the listeners. And I want to ask you two last questions that I always like to ask musicians. So first of all, what would you be if you weren't a musician? Lawyer. <laughs> Without even hesitating. <laughs> Decisively. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I took the LSAT, fun fact, uh, which is like the American test for entering law school, um, which at that particular time, I actually did very well. Um, it was, this is such a dumb argument to have in retrospect, but my dad is a doctor. I was very interested in law and I still am. It's kind of like a pet focused passion to this day. Um, And we were having an argument about qualitative versus quantitative testing and whether or not a test was harder if you had to study for it or if it was the sort of test that just generically determined aptitude and you couldn't study for it, which is such a I know, I know how nerdy that sounds, but, you know, this is where I live. And so I took the LSAT because that was the test that you couldn't really study for in that way. Yes, obviously, people study for the LSAT. You are able to practice the type of like you know thought processes that go into it, but that wasn't really what I, I was trying to do because there isn't like you don't have to memorize case law in order to take the LSAT. If you're taking the MCAT, which is the doctor med school version of that, you have to like study you know biology, org chemistry, things like that because you are going to be asked and tested on literal things like that are true or false facts in that regard. Whereas with the LSAT, you know, there's a lot of reading comprehension, how you process word games and, you know, your sense of logic, things like that. Um, so there are very different types of tests in that regard. Yeah. So without even hesitating, you would be a lawyer if you weren't a musician, right? You answered the question so fast. I liked Phoenix Wright, man. I, I don't know what to say. I really liked Phoenix Wright and it broke something in me when I was 12 years old. 
And now I watch Legal Eagle in my free time because that's just kind of fun. Yeah, we watch Law and Order as well, my wife and I. So <laughs> we also get it. And the last question uh, is, what is your dream for yourself in five years from now, besides being a lawyer? I mean, in the world of music. <laughs> um, to continue getting to work with the greatest people in the world. Um, you know, I'm a big believer that like one of the best signs of professional happiness of someone who really enjoys the work that they do is that when you ask them that question, they're like, I don't know, I kind of just want to keep doing this. Um, I know that some people might say that that's unambitious for lack of better word, but to me, I wake up every day loving what I do and really enjoying the caliber of musicians and artists who I get to call friends and who I get to call on on a daily basis. And I don't want that to change. I really want to keep getting to work with wonderful people. I don't care so much about trying to expand my net worth or trying to increase the prestige of the things that I'm doing. I just want to keep getting to create music that I love with people that I love. And if that's what I get to do for the rest of my career, I think that I will have had the most remarkable career of all time from my perspective. Wow, that's such a nice ending to this episode. I think I'll cut that and put it as a teaser in the beginning. So if you already, uh, I'm talking to the listeners, if you already heard that sentence in the beginning, that means that I did that cut. <laughs> and that was such an optimistic and nice ending to end the episode. So uh, once again, Mason Lieberman, senior composer and game audio supervisor at Tencent. Thank you so much for being a guest in this episode. And thank you so much for having me. I will also thank the listeners. So thank you all so much for tuning in. You are invited to find more information on my blog, search Google for Rewind Music Podcast, or visit my website at awinermusic.com. Feel free to reach out with any questions on LinkedIn, Facebook, and Instagram. But first, Mason, I didn't say, where can people find you and ask you things or, you know, ask you advices and so on, Where, which social media do you use? Um, they can find me on Facebook, on LinkedIn, on Twitter. Um, you know, you can find me through my website, masonlieberman.com. I have a contact form. I'm pretty responsive, I think. Um, you know, hit me up on, I'm on Instagram. Hit me up on whatever it is that's uh, comfortable for you. I'm generically on most of the major platforms, I would say. Wonderful. Also, feel free to reach out to me with questions. And don't forget, as I said in the beginning, don't forget to rate the podcast and give it a follow on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. It will help people reaching the podcast who might find it interesting. If you liked this episode, don't forget to rewind it and send it to a friend. I will see you in the next episode with another awesome guest. Stay tuned. Bye-bye. Welcome to Rewind, an optimistic podcast that'll help you in your successful career in music. Amit Weiner hosts musicians, composers, professors, and sound wizards as they share their life stories and career decisions. Stay
stay tuned. It's going to be epic. <laughs>